imagination has no future, and I refuse to believe that I have been given permission to live and I am free. I realize this may be a shock, but God has a purpose for my life is actually a lie. And I believe money and popularity are priorities. In my lifetime, I will tell the people closest to me, I have my priorities straight and I must hold on to my pride. I surrender the idea that my actions will have an everlasting impact. In the future, lukewarm beliefs will be the norm. No longer can it be said that my peers and I care about our faith. It will be evident that my generation is apathetic and lethargic. It is foolish to presume that there is hope. But what if we change that? What if we shatter those expectations? What if we flip the script? There is hope. It is foolish to presume that my generation is apathetic and lethargic. It will be evident that my peers and I care about our faith. No longer can it be said that lukewarm beliefs will be the norm. In the future, my actions will have an everlasting impact. I surrender the idea that I must hold on to my pride. I have my priorities straight, and in my lifetime, I will tell the people closest to me, money and popularity are priorities. It's actually a lie, and I believe God has a purpose for my life. I realize this may be a shock, but I have been given permission to live, and I am free, and I refuse to believe that my generation has no future. I'm excited. Whoa, I'm also loud. I think I'm like channel 14 on there or something. Oh, I can turn this too. Oh, you got it. You got it. All right. You can turn in your notebooks to uh, Friday evening, Friday night, I think it's called. And you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Friday night, 1 Peter chapter 2. You guys ready? I'd encourage you over this weekend, take some notes. If you, we should have, already have pens out there. And uh, studies have proven that you remember things significantly better. And I don't remember the exact percentage. I should because I'm like the percentage guy. But you will remember things significantly better if you write it down. So if you want to like really get everything that the Lord has for you, write it down. Engage with, uh, with these messages. Engage with the Word of God. Uh, we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll give you a second to find it. In your Bibles, but as we read, uh, the book of First Peter begins with with chapter one, verse one. It says, "Peter." I can't believe I did that. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> First Peter chapter two, verse one. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 opens, Peter writes the letter, he opens, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
So before we can understand the message of this letter, before we can understand what Peter has to say to these people, we need to understand some things. Are we there in 1 Peter yet? All right, cool. We need to understand who this audience is. This audience is Jewish Christians who are living in exile. They've been dispersed through the Roman world. They've been expelled from Rome. And so they live in this world where it's like topsy-turvy, upside down. Everything is a mess. And so now we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And I'd like you guys to do something for me. Let's stand up as we read this verse out loud. So everyone stand on your feet. And we do this just as a sign of respect and honor for God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read the whole passage through verse 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, say but you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the authority that it speaks. We thank you for the way that it encourages and teaches us. Lord, I pray that over this weekend, your word would change our lives. We would open our eyes to see you for who you are and that we would never be the same. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I had us do that uh, because I think it's important that when we read the Bible, we remember some things. It's important that when we remember that when we read the Bible, we aren't just hearing words from a man. We're hearing God's word for us. The most authoritative part of this whole weekend are the times when we're going to stand and read scripture together. The most important words that you're going to hear this weekend are the words that you read out of this book. We believe that this book is powerful. We believe that this, this book is God's word to us. It is inspired. That means that as we read it, it's like God is speaking to us. It is authoritative. It has power to tell us how to live our lives and, and how to act as Christians. This, this book is a collection of ancient documents, stories, poems, uh, testimonies, letters taken together, and together they form a unified story that points us to Jesus. And when we find Jesus in the Word, that's when our lives are changed. And that's when our problems can begin to go away. That's when we can begin to find hope. That's when we can begin to find peace. That's when we can begin to find joy when we meet Jesus through the words of this book. And so that's why I had us stand, because I want us to remember that this is a special time, and this is a powerful word. And this word, if we will let it, will change our lives. And if we will listen, and we will diligently pay attention to what the Lord is speaking through this text, 
we will have massive transformation happen within us. So, that being said, why should we care about this letter? Why should we care about what a dead guy wrote to a bunch of dead people? Other than the fact of everything I just said, maybe you don't believe me, maybe it's like, okay, whatever, but this isn't really relevant, right? It's written to some people living forever ago. Maybe it's God's word, but it was God's word to them. Why should I care? Well, the life of these people living at this time and the life of us today is, is not that different. For, we, we, already, we already said these are uh, Christians who have been sent away from their home city in Rome. They've been uh, cast out into every region of ancient Rome. They've been thrown all over the place. And so now they live as exiles and sojourners, is what uh, Peter calls them. And he says, you are, are they're, they're alone. They feel outcast. They feel like they don't have a home. They are, they're misunderstood by everyone around them. They're accused of being uh, cannibalistic communists who ate babies. And that's not a joke. That's literally like, that's, that's the number one insult thrown at Christians within this time. So you think persecution's bad now. You think like Christians get a bad name now. Man, you do not want to be alive at this time. Of course, that, that was not true. They weren't actually eating babies or anything like that. But that was what people were saying. They're misunderstood. They are increasingly in conflict with the value system of their culture. They preach a message of morality in, in the middle of a, a culture, an immoral world. They preach a message of peace and justice in the Roman Empire that's ruled by violence and, and oppression and slavery, where 30% uh, of the population is enslaved. Uh, they preach a message, uh, most significantly, they preach a message in a culture that worships the Roman Empire and its emperor. They preach a message that Jesus, not Caesar, is the Lord of the world, the Savior of the world, the ruler of everything. And because of all this, they've come in a significant conflict with their world and with their culture. They are persecuted. The emperor of Rome is a young man named Nero, and he has systematically uh, oppressed all sorts of Christians. He has not yet become the terrible dictator that he will, but it's on the horizon. And Christians can kind of tell where the wind is blowing. They, they know it's about to get really bad really quick. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage them to be strong in their faith, to be built on Jesus, and to live a, a, a different way. His message to them is, you are made for this moment. God's plan for all of eternity includes you, and, and God's plan for this time includes you. You have a role to play in your world. And so why should we care about ancient letters written to ancient people? Because the world of Christians today, the world of us today living in the world, is not so different than the world of people living in Peter's time. Although we have flushing toilets and electricity, that's good, that's good. Although we have these, these different cultural accommodations, we also live in a world where we feel some pushback. We can feel the wind saying, in our culture, it's not so great to be a Christian. The things that we stand for, the morality that we believe is so important, it, it is often said, man, you guys are just such a bunch of stuck-up Puritans because you, you think that you shouldn't have sex before marriage. You think that, I don't want to do that. Um, Our values are increasingly in conflict with the world around us, and so we need this message. Our world is filled with chaos. We've just lived through 2020. You made it. We've lived through this year of just chaos and, and challenge, the year from hell, and, and we feel the tension in our world, the tension in our culture. We live in a culture that's increasingly post-Christian. Many, uh, if you survey them and ask them, what's your religion? Many people just say, I don't really believe anything. The more and more Americans are apathetic about who God is and what he wants to do in our world. 
For, for many Christians, they're unable to articulate the basic beliefs of their faith. They're unable to say what it means, what sets them apart as a follower of Jesus. Many true followers of Jesus are misunderstood. The message of Jesus gets mixed with political slogans and talking points. If you love Jesus, you have to vote for this person. You have to support this policy. You can't possibly oppose this thing. There's people who claim allegiance to Jesus. They've claimed as their own, and yet they want to just cherry-pick verses of the Bible. And they want to only take the things that they like about love and grace and compassion. They want to throw everything out about holiness and judgment. True Christians have become increasingly obsessed with doctrinal minutia. When's the rapture going to happen? Is the vaccine the mark of the beast? When's Jesus coming back? Uh, it, it, should we do this ancient cultural practice today or, or should we not? We have a culture that increasingly demands our allegiance to its own ethical standards on morality, on sexuality, on life and on justice. And so we read this letter from Peter because we, def we desperately need to hear his message today. Peter gives a message of calm to Christians in a culture of chaos. He says, it may feel like everything is falling down around you, but you have a firm foundation. Th that you are chosen by God and you belong to him. He says, you might be isolated in your community. It might be feel like you're the only one out there living for Jesus, but he's got you right where he wants you. You just watch what he's going to do through you. You have a role to play in God's story. You were made for this moment. So by way of introduction, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. This is my first thing I, I want you to get. It's time to grow up. This is Peter's first instruction. This church living, facing persecution, facing difficulty. He tells them it is time to grow up. The call of Christ is a call to maturity. Now, now he, he's not saying, you, you need to hear this right, because he's not saying this condescendingly. He's not saying this aggressively. Grow up. You piece of crap. You failure. Grow up. He's saying this encouragingly. Hey, there is more for you in your life. There's more for you in your walk with Jesus than where you are now. And so I want you to hear this command not as condemnation, not as a sticking it in your face, not as telling you, man, you're a worthless, awful piece of trash. you got to do better. But I'm saying, hey, there is more for you. God has bigger things in store for you. God has better things than the way you're living right now, what you're involved in right now. There is a better life for you. Grow up. Grow up. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. See, for a Christian, the issue has less to do with whether or not something is sinful and much more to do with whether or not it's mature. We need to progress and mature as Christians. It's not so much about, is this sin? Is this not sin? It's much more about, is this a mature way to live or is this an immature way to live? Peter doesn't say, get rid of all this stuff or else you'll go to hell. He says, you need to get rid of this stuff because there's something better for you. It is immaturity. And so you need to put it away. You need to put away immature feelings, malice. You need to put away immature intentions, deceit. You need to put away immature actions, hypocrisy. You need to put away immature desires, envy. You need to put away immature words, slanders. This word that he says for put away is the Greek word apotiphany. And it has the idea of choose against, make a better choice. See, Christians always have a choice. You always have a choice how you live. You live in a world that tells you you don't have a choice. Because you feel these things, you must do these actions. 
Because you feel the temptation to live this way, you must live this way. Because you, you feel this certain thing inside of you. But Jesus says you have a choice how you live. You have a choice what you do. You have a choice who you are and how you act. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus has freed you and given you a choice. Before Jesus, you didn't have a choice. Before Jesus, you were stuck in sin. Before Jesus, no matter how hard you tried, you could never break out of the pattern of sin. And you had no hope. You were without God in the world. But Jesus came. He freed you. And he gave you a choice. You can now choose to say no to sin and to say yes to Jesus. And so put away all of this immaturity. Put away those immature thoughts. You don't need to think those things anymore. You have a choice what rules your mind. Put away those immature actions. You get to choose what your body does and does not do. Put away those immature feelings. Listen to me. Look at me. You have a choice over your feelings. You have power over the way you feel. Your feelings do not rule you. Your feelings do not run your life, and your world tells you the opposite. They tell you that whatever you feel must be right, and that is a lie. As Christians, we have a choice. We have control over our feelings. So we need to put away immature things, and, and we need to grow up. We need to come to Jesus. Get, grow, growing up is tied to putting away these things. The verse 2, all, all I could think of in my notes was that he needs some milk. Because that's what it says. It says, as a newborn infant long for true spiritual milk, you need some milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is a really fascinating phrase in the Greek. It, it, it's hard to really understand. What is this milk that, that Peter is talking about? Like, I drank some milk the other day, and I didn't feel any more spiritual or better. This milk is Christ himself. Just like a newborn infant can't grow without milk, a Christian cannot grow without Christ. Christ is the only source of growth. Jesus is the only source of life change. Jesus is the only way that you're going to manage to put away this immaturity and live a better life, live a different life. If you're going to grow as a Christian, you need Jesus. He says, get this milk that by it you may grow. So verse 3, he explains how this works. He says, if indeed you have tasted the Lord, you've tasted that the Lord is good. So, so this if indeed is another weird thing in Greek. Uh, it's saying, because you have tasted that the Lord is good, then you can long for this spiritual milk. So it becomes this cycle. It, it becomes this, uh, this cycle of learning to love Jesus more, learning to hate sin more. God is addicting. The presence of God is addicting. The more you get of Jesus in your life, and some of you guys, I see you nodding because you've tasted this in your life. And you've seen yourself go from that person who really doesn't care about Jesus, but then you like, you read the Bible a little bit, and something happened. You came to church, maybe you, you lifted your hands during worship, and you, whoa, I, I like this. This is good. This is good. And, and now, man, I want to do this more. There, there's something that happens when I come on a Wednesday night. There's something that happens when I come to camp. I, I feel different. I, I, feel, I feel like a better person. I feel like there's, there's almost like some, some happiness in that. You've tasted that the Lord is good. And so because you've tasted the Lord is good, you can now long for that spiritual milk. You long for Jesus because you've tasted the goodness of God. The more you taste a good thing, the more you hate a rotten thing. See, the solution to your sin problem is not hating your sin more. It's loving Jesus more. If you love Jesus more, then you will hate sin as a result. If you try to spend your life trying to, man, ah, sin sucks, sin sucks, sin sucks. Ah, I screwed up again. Sin sucks, sin sucks, sin sucks. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Can't believe I did that. All you're going to be is just on this hamster wheel. You're running around trying to beat sin, but you got no power. 
But if you live your life saying, I want Jesus, God, help me to follow you today. God, be with me in your prower today. God, I, I want to meet with you at Trademark on Wednesday night. God, I, I'm here, and I, I know it's just 15 minutes of worship, but Lord, as I do this, would you change something in me? Lord, I'm stuck in this pattern of sin, and I can't get out. God, would you do something about it? Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I want to live for you. And that's where the change happens. Not when you start beating yourself up over sin, but it's when you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, change me. Jesus, make me a new person. We need more love for Jesus. This is the cycle of sanctification. It starts with Jesus. Jesus gives me a taste of life. He, he, he opens my eyes to see him. He, he gives me this, this first bite of something good. And, and so I return to sin because I'm, I'm, I'm a broken human. I'm messed up. Maybe I'm the only one in the room. No, you guys, you guys feel what that's like, right? We, we get back to it. But it doesn't taste as good as it did before. Because I've tasted something better. And so I eat it. It's really good. And I come back to Jesus. And man, oh, this is so much better than everything else that I've tasted. This is so much, oh, it's so much healthier. I can tell clean eating. Man, this feels good. This feels good. He gives me life. I taste freedom. I'm broken, so I return to sin. But it tastes even worse because I've had so much of this good thing. And the cycle continues. And we begin to fall out of sin as we fall in love with Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the problem of our sin. Jesus is the answer to our immaturity. We find Jesus, and that's when we find freedom. So programs won't fix you. Disciplines won't solve your problems. Only Jesus will. Those are good things, and Jesus will use good programs, and Jesus will use spiritual discipline to, to, to help you grow. You, you'll find Jesus more through some spiritual disciplines, through spending time in the Bible, through spending time in prayer. But if you do those things and don't look for Jesus, if you read your Bible like a textbook, if you do some prayer time in the morning just because you're supposed to, dear God, help me with the day, amen. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, amen. That's just rote. You're just doing it. But when you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've got this tough test today, and I don't know how I'm going to do. Could you just help me? Jesus, my parents are fighting, and it's scary for me. It's hard for me. Would you help me? Jesus, I feel so alone. Help me know that you're there with me. Those are the moments when God meets with you. And in those moments, powerful things happen because God changes you. So you need to come to Jesus. And as you come to him, some things happen. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And this is what happens when we come to Jesus. We become something new. Jesus builds us into something. Now, when you hear this, you are built for something. You have a purpose to fulfill in your life. You, you are not meant just to be this uh, you know, automaton who worships God and goes away from sin. You're, you're not this just walking robot. There's something bigger for you. There's something more for you. There's something greater for you. So when we say made for this moment, that's what we mean. That, that you aren't just you know, walking around in life. You aren't just going about aimlessly. But you are made for this moment. There's something that God wants you to do in this moment where you are in your life right now. In the middle uh, of all the craziness and chaos of 2021, February 19th, the chaos of today, there's a 
task that God has for you. And in the chaos of February 20th, tomorrow, there's going to be a task that God has for you. There's going to be something that he wants you to do. And he says, you are made for this moment. You have a purpose to fulfill in this moment. Don't just let life pass you by. Existence pass you by. But in this moment, you have a role to play in shaping this moment. Don't let tragedy pass you by. In the middle of tragedy, you have a role to play. And you were made for that moment. But you only find this purpose in Jesus and nowhere else. He says you're a holy priesthood. You are a priest. A priest is a representative of God to humans. In ancient times, when people wanted to meet with God, they would have to go to a priest. And when they found this priest, then they would be able to, 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 to pray to God. Or they'd, they'd be able to offer a sacrifice and get forgiveness. He says we don't have to go to a priest anymore. Instead, we are the priests. We bring God to other people. When we walk into a room, we walk with God. We walk with the power of the Spirit. And so don't waste that moment. You were made for this moment. You walk into a room and there's, there's chaos and there's fighting and there's arguing. Walk into that moment. Bring Jesus with you and bring peace. You walk into a moment and your friend is just having a tough day. It's just hard. Don't walk into that moment and pass it by. Man, that sucks. I hope stuff gets better. Walk into that moment and bring Jesus with you. You are a holy priest. Man, I'm so sorry that's going on. Can I pray with you? Man, Adam said this thing on Wednesday, and it was, it just, it changed my life. Would you come with me next Wednesday? I think God might be able to help you. It sounds like you, you just, you need something. Don't let those moments pass you by, but be a priest in those moments. Step off and step out. This is the picture that I had in my head as I was studying this. The picture of a merry-go-round spinning around on a playground. And if I can, I stand on the side, and I watch that merry-go-round go around, and I watch everyone else having fun, and it's a, it's a little like, oh, it's kind of chaos and craziness and, and wildness. Maybe I just want to sit here on the bench and watch the other kids on there. I want to I invite you off the bench and to step onto the merry-go-round. Step into the chaos and the craziness of life. We say this all the time. Real life is messy life, and that's okay. We are all about messy life. But when you step into those messy moments, be a priest in those moments and bring Jesus with you. Bring some calm. So be there for the friend whose parents are going through divorce. Be there for the person who just lost a family member to COVID. Be there. Uh, go, 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 and go out of your way to sit with someone you don't know and get to know them. Be the presence of God wherever you are. Uh, Christian author G.K. Beale, he says this, We become what you worship. We become what we worship. Better translation that makes more sense to me. You are what you eat. You are what you eat. The things that you hold in high regard will have a hold over your affections. They will have a hold of the way you live your life. All this stuff that we just thought, this only happens through Jesus. And so if you want to see this happen, you need to have Jesus on a, on a high pedestal. Because without Jesus, you are screwed, man. You got no hope apart from him. If you place a high priority on your friends, you're going to become just like them. And in those moments when you ought to be a holy priest, you leave Jesus behind because you care more about what your friends think. You care more about looking good and looking cool. So you leave Jesus behind, and I just, I won't talk about that. Maybe next week. And you pray, God, give me an opportunity to invite my friend to trademark. Give me a chance to, to show them how much you love them. Amen. And then you walk into the chaos, and you're scared. You're nervous, and so you, you don't talk about Jesus. You were praying for an opportunity, and he's staring you right in the face. You're going to become what you're going to eat. 
you're going to end up just like them. You can leave Jesus behind, and that's where they're going to lead you. They're going to lead you into that same chaos and craziness of their lives. If you're consumed with a relationship, that relationship will consume you. If you make money your priority, it will be, and everything else will fall aside. And you will give up those opportunities that you have to be Jesus for someone because, man, I could get a few more hours at work. Man, I could be there for my family, but uh, overtime this weekend, I'd much rather get that. And you know you guys aren't doing this yet, but stick this one in the back pocket because you will be in that spot one day. You get to make that decision. If you idolize family, this one's harder. If you idolize family, you're going to be consumed by your need to be the perfect parent, your need to be the perfect sibling, your need to be the perfect daughter, the perfect son. But if you idolize Jesus, if you behold Jesus, Jesus will consume you. You'll spend your day thinking of scriptures. You'll have worship songs stuck in your head. You'll have random preaching points jumping out at you. This is, just, this, this is the life of someone following Jesus, and there's no better way to live as Jesus consumes your affection, as Jesus consumes your desires. And then in those moments, it's like, man, let me tell you about Jesus, because I don't really care anymore whether you think I'm cool. I don't really care anymore whether you like me. I don't care anymore whether, like, I just want you to know Jesus because he's changed my life. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Can, can I introduce you to my friend Jesus? He wants to do some things for your life too. You want to be like Jesus, come to him. Consume him. Treasure him. When there's an opportunity for Bible study, show up and just, just be there. You might not understand anything. You might feel like, man, these people are so much smarter than me. I'm an idiot. I don't know the Bible at all. Keep showing up, and, and you'll get there. It'll happen. It takes time. When there's, when there's a service, the doors of the church are open, be there. Night of worship, I'm showing up. Trademark, I'm showing up. Sunday morning, I'm showing up. Random work day, I'm showing up. I'm, I'm going to be there when the doors are open because I want to consume Jesus. I want to be around people who are like him. I, I, I want to be around the place where, where we worship him. When you're in worship, be fully present and seek to go deeper. I love these times at camp because it's like we get some time to actually worship and like slow down and, and we have room in our schedule like, no, we're just going to worship for 45 minutes tonight and that's okay. And we don't always do that. Uh, don't worry, I saw your eyes get, we're not doing that. Yeah, freak some people out. Some fights. But that doesn't have to be just camp. You can have those worship experiences on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. You can have those worship experiences in your car on the way to school. You can have those worship experiences as you're walking from place to place. You got your phone. You got Apple Music. You got Spotify. If you don't, talk to me. I'll add you to my Apple Music family. That, that was a joke. Don't actually. I don't want to. Um, that was mean. Be fully present and seek to go deeper in those moments because God wants to do something for you. God wants to do something in you. Maybe it's only 15 minutes of worship, but make that 15 minutes of worship count. Show up and be present there. God, I have a chance to stand face to face and sing a song to you, to talk to you, and you're going to talk right back at me. That's a powerful moment. Don't miss it. Give him your life, and you will find abundant life in return. Lose yourself in Christ, and you will find yourself more truly than you could ever imagine.
3, verse 68, where it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Two questions for you as I wrap this up. What do you believe and where have you built? What do you believe? Where have you built? So this passage, Peter makes these three Old Testament references to cornerstones. It's like, what the heck is a cornerstone? It's that worship song we sing, right? Well, a cornerstone, when, when you build a building, you need, you need a spot that's going to hold all of the weight of the building. Especially, this is, this is important if you build on like weird places, because the, the building can like sink, then you get cracks in the wall like we have over there. Uh, you, you'll get all kinds of stuff. You need a really good, firm foundation for the building to stand up on, so that no matter what happens, you're okay. It's the most important part, that this cornerstone is the corner of the foundation. So the foundation is the most important part of the building. And then, the most important part of the foundation is the cornerstone. You lay that first, and you build everything else around it. And the weight of the building all pushes and falls onto that cornerstone. So it's really important that you choose the right cornerstone when you build a building. Because if you don't, it's going to collapse sooner or later. It might stand for a while. It'll look really impressive. And we see this all the time, because a ton of ancient buildings don't exist anymore. The ones that do are the ones where they had the really good cornerstone. You guys have seen the, the Tower of Pisa, right? The, the Leaning Tower? That thing was built not nearly that long ago, like 500 years ago, which you're like, man, 500 years is forever. But we have buildings that have been here for 2,000 years, and like, we still like, can, they're still there, and they're going to be there for another 2,000 years. The difference between a pyramid and the Tower of Pisa, the pyramid has a good cornerstone. It's got a good foundation. It's got a massive foundation, and it, it's everything, everything else is built on that huge foundation on the bottom. Leaning Tower of Pisa, they take as much time, they had a bad foundation, the building just slowly leaning over, leaning over, it's going to fall at some point in time, we don't know when. The better the cornerstone, the better the building. And Jesus says, in all three of these places, he says that these are about me. Throughout Jesus' life and teaching, he quotes these three different verses that, that Peter quoted here. It's no surprise that Peter's going to pick these verses. He followed Jesus for three years. He heard all of his sermons. He's just, he's repeating Jesus' best material. He said, hey, these three, these three cornerstones, man, as you come to Jesus, this is who he is. This is who Jesus is. He's the foundation of everything. Jesus is this cornerstone that all these verses talk about. He was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He was rejected by many people, but now he's become the cornerstone. And he's the thing everything is built off of. Jesus is the only foundation worth building on. Jesus is the only one who can take the pressure of your hopes and your dreams. Like, believe me, your hopes and dreams matter. Those are good things. They're heavy things. So don't put them on something that can't hold them. Don't, don't lose your hopes and dreams by building them on a relationship. Because relationships crumble. 
Don't lose your hopes and dreams by building them on, on your family. Because families don't last forever. Don't lose your hopes and dreams by, by building them on your own personal success. You aren't that strong. No matter how good you are, like you're great, but you're not good enough to hold the weight of your life and your hopes and dreams. Whatever you're going to build it on, your hopes and dreams are too precious to be placed anywhere besides Jesus. But you place them on Jesus, you put them on that firm foundation, it's going to hold that thing up. It's not going to fall. Peter also contrasts two ways of living. He talks about those who believe and those who do not believe. Those who believe, you'll never be put to shame. What he's saying here, it, when you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you're not going to be embarrassed for putting your hope on him. Ultimately, there might be some awkward moments in your life. It's like, man, you want to hang out? Sorry, I got church. That might be awkward for you. But ultimately, when their life is falling apart and your life isn't. Sorry, I make that sound like if you follow Jesus, your life isn't not a promise that we have. We do have the promise that when life falls apart, when life gets rough, it falls onto Jesus because he's the foundation, not anything else. You might lose a pillar here and there. You might lose a really important wall. Man, I really liked the living room, the living room wall. It was really pretty. I had a really nice piece of artwork on there. It, it was like, it was so good for people to look at. It fell down. It sucks. But my house is still there because it wasn't built on the living room wall. It was built on the foundation. It's built on Jesus. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that's what Peter says, if you believe that Jesus is this cornerstone, then what you're going to do is build your life on it. So that's my second question. What do you believe? What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is able to take the weight of your life If you're honestly considering that question, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'd invite you to try it out just a little bit. Because you've tried the other things, and you know they don't work. You've been disappointed by a bad relationship. You've been disappointed by the bad grades. You've been disappointed when your family wasn't as great as you wanted it to be. You've been disappointed with your own failure tried a lot of other things. Give Jesus a shot. If you will transfer your trust to Jesus, you will not be put to shame. But for those who, don't, who, who, who do not believe, stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, this weird thing that happens don't believe Jesus, you begin to get tripped up by him. And ultimately, I'm not trying to be a downer, but if you won't put your trust in Jesus, you're going to get the ultimate trip up if you know what I'm talking about. Like, you're going to start to trip, you're going to start to stumble, you're going to start to fall, and there's nothing there to catch you because you didn't build your life on the one thing that did catch you. You're put to shame in that moment. It's like, man, that relationship was going to work out. Man, I really thought that I'd get into that school. I 
how to do better in that tournament. Tripping up, all my hope is on that thing. So what do you believe? Where have you built? Jesus ends the best sermon ever with a moving parable that makes the same point. I'm not saying that Peter stole from Jesus, but Peter stole from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus ends the best sermon ever spoken with a story. And, and would you stand with me as we read God's word? And as you hear the words of Jesus speaking to you, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds, they blew, they beat against that house, and it fell. Great was the fall of it. See, the storm came to both kinds of people. What I, what I don't want you to hear is that come to Jesus and your life will be perfect. Come to Jesus and the storm will never come. Come to Jesus and all your problems are going to go away. That's not what Jesus is promising. Jesus doesn't promise an escape from storms. He promises that when the storm comes, he's going to keep your house standing. And some of you, you've experienced that. You've gone through that storm. And like, I, I, I can look at the leaders because I know they're like, they're older and they've been through just some more life. And like, you guys know, Moses, you've been through this storm. Pastor Gabe, you've been through that storm. You're still standing there. Some of you older ones, you've been through those storms. You're still here. It was tough. It hurt. But you're still standing because your house was built in the right place. It may not be standing by much, but it's still there. But some of you, you've experienced the opposite. I imagine a whole lot more of us in the room, maybe probably all of us, know what this feels like. I built my house on sand. I put my hope in myself. I put my hope in my achievements. I put my hope in my dreams and put my hope in that other person. When it got real, there wasn't enough to hold the weight of my life. It wasn't enough to hold the weight of your life. Some of you, you're in that storm right now. You feel that pressure. You feel the waves. It's like, oh, they are Sometimes the storms reveal where your foundation really is. They show you a whole lot. Storms, trials, difficulties, they have, have a way of showing us what's inside of us, where we've built. They have a way of challenging our deeply held beliefs or our beliefs about our beliefs, right? I, I thought I trusted Jesus a whole lot more until I was in the thick of it and realized, oh, wow, I just had a lot of platitudes and I had a lot of sayings that I like to repeat. Now this storm opportunity for me to change where my hope is built. Sometimes we need a storm that's just going to knock down that house because that house was built in the wrong place. And ultimately, 
It was going to fall anyways. And so thank God that it fell now rather than 30 years down the road when I'd built so much more, when it was so much more tragic, when it was so much more terrible. God, thank you for the storms in my life because they showed me where my hope was. God, and I, I thank God for the storm that showed me, yeah, my hope is in Jesus. Yeah, my life is falling apart. But thank God God is there because he's holding me together and he's holding me up. He's keeping me going. It is gracious for God to tear down my false house built on false foundations. It is gracious for God to tear down my fake personality. It is gracious for God to show me that I'm not really the person that I thought I was. It is gracious for God to show me that that relationship couldn't hold my hope. What do you believe? Where have you built? In a moment, I'm going to invite you forward to pray. Maybe in this moment you're realizing that your life is built on the wrong place. And as you come, I'd like you to realize that some things that you thought you believed, you're not so sure anymore. Jesus is going to challenge your assumptions about who he is. It's okay. The Lord's going to do some renovation tonight. So would you, as we pray, as I invite you, would you just let God do some renovation within your life? Would you let him tear down some houses that you've built? Would you let him show you the places where your foundation wasn't where it needed to be? So that you can then begin to build a better house, that, that God can build on you a better, more productive, more effective house. So I'm, I'm gonna invite you to, to come forward and receive prayer. If you wanna pray with a leader, we'll be available for you to, to pray with us, meet and talk with us through some stuff. But if you just need to get with God, like do that too. There's some space. And there's three things I want to invite you into. Uh, I want to tell you, it's not too late to rebuild. It's not too late to rebuild. You may feel like, man, I am too far gone. My life is a total mess. If you only knew. It's not too late for you to rebuild. God is here, and he's here with grace and love for your failure. Not judgment, not shame, not accusation. You can start to rebuild tonight. It is not too late to recommit. Maybe you're this person, you're like, man, I was all in on Jesus, and then I hit that storm, and I just felt like I wasn't there. My hope was in the wrong things. It's not too late to recommit. You can start over. It's not too late to start for the very first time. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to say amen, and when I do, that's your invitation, just to come the Lord. Take some time to examine where you've built your life. Take some time to invite him to do some things in you, to do some things through you. Jesus, so thankful for your word. So thankful for the authority that it speaks over us. That as we read this word, we find you. That you challenge our deeply held assumptions. God, you love us enough to tell us the truth. You love us enough to tell us when our life is in the wrong place and our hope is in the wrong place. Lord, I pray that when we hear that, we wouldn't feel shame or embarrassment, but rather we'd feel your conviction that we'd respond by coming to you, by building our lives on you and on you alone. Jesus, I pray that you'd work in every student tonight. Would you build them up? Would you rebuild their house? Would you strengthen the foundation that is already there? Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do in this time. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.
Amen. If you would pray, come. invite Jesus to challenge you? Would you be up for the challenge? Maybe you'll walk away from that challenge and be like, yeah, screw Jesus, don't care about him. But would you just open your heart? Say, Lord, would you, would you come challenge the assumptions that I have? Would you challenge some of the 